We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she needs. I think about everyone you need. I hold in it, things are really real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey, it's her ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Do I believe that we have vanquished the forces of white supremacy? No. <laughs> Do I believe that we are fighting the same iteration of the battle that my father fought? No. Uh, and so when I say that, we can say we have zero black governors. We can say that we are underrepresented, as all people of color are, um, in American society in terms of the number of people who are uh, elected, hold elected office. Absolutely true. Uh, do I believe that those struggles that people waged over the course of the 20th century uh, have made things better? Indisputably. And so I sure. think that that's it. And the summary, the summary of it is like the phrase that I always use. Uh, I have the optimism of a boxer in the late rounds. Meaning that you are well aware that you're going to be punched in the face because you've been punched in the face. But you also are aware that these people do not have the strength to knock you out. That you are still on your feet. You are still throwing punches. And that you're still going to be standing at the final bell. And that if you do what you came to do, you may actually pull this out. And so I think that's the, the scale that we should look at our, like what we're measuring against. Dr. Jelani Cobb has been a friend of mine for a long time. He's one of the most brilliant people I know. A beautiful academic who's written a new book called The Matter of Black Lives, an anthology that talks about black life with voices like Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Zadie Smith, Hilton Alls, all the amazing people. Jelani's been a professor a long time. He's been at the New Yorker for a long time. He is one of the great 
public intellectuals of our day. It is an honor to have him on the show once again. So let's dig in. It's Jelani Cobb on Torre Show. So congrats on the book. Thank you. What is the overall thrust of the book that you think we would take from this? So the first essay in the book is uh, James Baldwin's letter from a region in my mind. Uh, And we were like rereading that piece and thinking about that piece and talking about it last summer in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's death. And we started thinking about kind of narrative threads that connect to some of the ideas that Baldwin was expressing uh, in that really just, you know, searing, incendiary piece of writing. And it was, we thought that there was a way of looking at all of, not all, but a large portion of the writing that had appeared about race, you know, or even tangentially dealing with race, almost refracted through the lens of that Baldwin essay. Uh, and so I said that it would be like, in my mind, going into a dinner party and you know James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, Hilton Owls, you know, all these amazing writers, Zadie Smith, they're all there in dialogue with each other. And David Remnick and I got to be the moderators. Mm, mm, mm. Well, that would be amazing. It would be. It? It'd be amazing. Yeah. A, I'm trying to think who would you want to talk to first, but I mean like Baldwin. Literally, literally anybody in that room, but probably Baldwin first. Um, no, Morrison. Just to Tony, that yeah, would be Morrison. talking to Tony Morrison would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to Tony Morrison before, but I've never talked to James Baldwin. Uh, and so maybe that would be the. Right, play right, right, for, right, right. And we were too young to actually have met yeah. James Baldwin. Yeah, I want exactly. to run over and talk to him. Right. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, I think Baldwin died the at the very end of my first semester in college. And, uh, and my English teacher came in, my English professor came in, and uh, was, you know, visibly upset and, you know, talked about just – how significant Baldwin was. And I mean, I knew who he was, but I hadn't at that age grappled with his titanic import in black life and in the way that this professor clearly had. And so I mark, you know, that as almost a kind of tangential connection that I never met him in person, but it was like news of his death you know, being brought to me by this person who was teaching me how to write as somehow kind of connecting a lot of my interests to the stuff that Baldwin did. And I think that generationally, I don't know if, if that is the same for you, but I, I feel like a lot of people in our age range had similar kinds of ignition moments, you know, with Baldwin in some way, shape or form. I mean, I just always remember him being held in the highest of esteem um, in terms of just whenever anyone would talk about him, I don't recall not knowing who mm-hmm. he was. Um, you know, the name was just always spoken with reverence. And, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, the ideas are great and powerful, 
but I get lost in the writing and the rhythms mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm, sentences mm-hmm. and, you know, he'll bust out a really long mm-hmm. sentence and then a beautiful short one. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, it, it comes near the line of overwriting, but mm-hmm. never goes over mm-hmm. it. And it's like, is it, it's broke, but not too much. Right. You know, I'm like, this is the gold standard right here of having style that we, you know, like you would know a Baldwin sentence without his name attached. Right. But it doesn't overpower, you know, you can see um, the impact of the pulpit Mm, on him and the street Mm -hmm. on him. Mm -hmm. And so just, I, I, you know, I just like the, you know, the word choices, like I, I get into that and I get very excited about him just as a writer. Yeah. I think that there's a thing, you know, where I always talk with my students about when I say that there's a principle that architects and engineers know, like the first thing you do when you design a building, the first thing the building has to do is be able to support its own weight. And that same principle applies to sentences, mm-hmm. you know, and Baldwin knew how to structure, you know, these sentences such that they stood up, you know, under their own weight and you're going like, Oh wait, you know, uh, I'm putting a terrace here and I'm putting, you know, a tower here I'm putting all these other things uh, but it doesn't fall over in that way, and so, uh, and, and this is another thing that I think that that kind of rereading that essay reminded me of, you know, which is that, you know, Baldwin's elocution, and even like when he was speaking in person, he always had that fiery element, you know, of him, but it was a kind of controlled, contained thing. Like he wasn't, you know, a, a wild-eyed, raving man. He was a person who could speak really intelligently and really passionately at the same time, which is, you know, a difficult thing to pull off. Um, But it reminded me of an aunt uh, that I had in Birmingham. Actually, she was from Birmingham, but, you know, most of my family in Alabama came up to New York together. And, you know, so I grew up in Queens and Hollis and, you know, this aunt lived five blocks away and another aunt was maybe 10 blocks and, you know, all that kind of family, you know, connections and you know, this was the aunt that I didn't really like going to see that much <laughs> because she was very formal. You know, like kids don't want to be formal. She had like rules and like fork like over here. And, you know, I just didn't want that. I was like, can we have a hot dog, you know? Um, and you know, she, I remember her sitting us down and making us watch Roots, you know, and she was a very dignified woman. You know, she was the one that made sure that like, her kids had piano lessons and, and such. And so it took me a long time to un, un, to kind of understand how radical that was you know, for a woman who had not a lot of formal education, who grew up in the depths of segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, and that her dignity itself was a weapon, a form of self-defense, that if everything around you is meant to reduce you and to equate blackness with lowliness, then my personal diction, my carriage, my ability to enjoy my life in this particular way is my response to you trying to to impose that on me. It also preps up your self-esteem. It does. Right? Like, I, I have class. Right? right. You can't degrade you me. You can't degrade me. I right. know where the fork goes. Right. right? I'm, I am dignified and proper. Yeah. And so I, I engage that on this most superficial level. Like, oh, that's just bourgeois. It's just like so on and so forth. And I didn't really understand what that was. And, you know, I think that Baldwin, you know, for coming up in Harlem and being intimately familiar 
with the ways that your life could be impacted by your despair, segregation, discrimination, mm. poverty, marginalization, uh, police violence, drugs, all those things that you know he understood and witnessed and, and talks about in that essay. You know, for him being who he was, just walking into the room as James Baldwin was mm. was a statement. Um, and I, I think that about like that style of writing that he, he well, with two with Baldwin, you're making me think of how I feel like the ego of black men in particular mm-hmm. is outsized and outsiders have not understood that. Mm-hmm. And it's about protection. Sure. A lot of times the world is telling you ain't shit. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell myself I am the shit, even if I have no accomplishments and no outward reason right. to believe that I believe in me and I walk around with my chest puffed out because if I don't, then I'm just going to get crushed because right. the world will tell me I ain't shit. Right. Um, and he's definitely, I mean, obviously he has a mountain of achievements to stand on, but I'm sure, and I'm sure I found this in the work that he was thinking a lot of himself because otherwise it would all go to shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be able to construct a version of himself that was durable in those circumstances. When, you know, I, I was talking and, you know, you and I go back to kind of dawning points in hip hop and that yeah. being like the lingua franca of, you know, of our generation. Hell yeah. And, you know, the connections with like those old black toasts, you know, Staggerly and Shine and, you know, sure. all of those things. Right. And so, you know, what's the appeal of lionizing a man like Stagger Lee in poetry, in folk poetry. Like, this dude does horrible things. He is quick with his knife, quick with his gun, you know, always committing an act of violence. And, you know, it reminds me of that that line where after he's gone in the bar, had the conflict with the bartender, shot the bartender, bartender's brother comes to avenge him. He shoots the bartender, the bartender's brother, uh, and then explains to everybody who he is in the room, you know, runs down his pedigree where he says, um, when I was a child, my crib was a barrel of knives, a rattlesnake bit me, then he crawled off and died. And I was like, he's going through this whole thing because it's about immunity to violence. Like the thing that we are most plagued with, our vulnerability, our frailty, our mortality, we are never allowed a moment of respite from having to understand that as a reality, as a human reality. And it made an immortal figure valuable to us. Mm, mm. You know, and we're kind of saying, like, look at the audacity. This dude is the opposite of us. He's invulnerable, you know? There's that, and it's also like like the black man in particular can seem like the villain Mm -hmm. until you go back Mm -hmm. and you look at, you know, like he's, you know, out here trying to rob somebody. He's a horrible person. Well, why is he there? Right. Well, you know, the state took away his dad and he had no education and he got robbed over here and now he's got these kids and he's trying to take care of them. And like, when you look at all that, like, oh, well, I guess he's yeah. more right. heroic and understandable, sympathetic. I mean, I was even thinking about, well, you were talking Candyman, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, I haven't seen it. Oh, you got to see it. You got to see it. But I'll just say this. The villain 
it, and this doesn't spoil anything because mm-hmm. this is this, this is a remake. But the villain, it, once you get down to the nitty gritty, he's actually a hero, mm-hmm. which is like some black mm-hmm. bo- horror movie shit. Right. Like you thought he was no, no, right. <laughs> which is funny because you know, like getting back to you know the recently deceased um, you know Melvin Van Peebles, mm. who understood that you know that the dude who you see on the street corner. Uh, who was a derelict in the eyes of society, of polite society, you know, but that dude is heroic in his own world. Like, people would be like, wait, wait, you don't know who that is? You think that's just a dude in the corner? Man, that's such and such. You know, you got, they have a whole narrative of their life, which when put in context, gives you a different understanding, you know, of who they are, what they're doing in this place, and so on. You know, that it's all relative. And I, and I think this Baldwin is heroic because he never lost sight of that. You know, even no matter what literary heights he ascended to. You know, a lot of the things that Baldwin wrote about, a lot of the things that we see, you know, his contemporaries writing about 60s, 70s, are dead similar to the Mm -hmm. issues we're dealing with now. And in a way, Mm -hmm. it's like, have we really made progress and Mm -hmm. we're still dealing with the same issues? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, and that's a question that comes up a lot and has come up a lot recently for reasons I think that are not that hard to discern. Um, But I think that it also is like part of it is the human condition, you know? Mm. Like at what point is democracy, um, you know, a self-driving vehicle? Never. (laughs) Never. You always have to to get out in the street and kind of man the bulwarks, you know, against autocracy, um, exploitation, everything that goes against the idea of actual democracy. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, that's our fate. I think Derek Bell was right, you know, when he said we would always have this struggle. But I don't know if we always have the struggle in the same way. Uh, and in, the reason I say that is that I feel like asking if we've made progress is simultaneously asking if our ancestors knew what they were doing. You know, because if we're fighting the same battles that they fought, then it means that, you know, maybe Frederick Douglass wasn't as brilliant as we thought. You know, maybe, you know, Ella Baker you know, wasn't as insightful as we thought. Like, if all of it comes to naught, then we have to correspondingly demote them mm. in some sense. That's, you know, I saw um, a tweet that kind of blew my mind a little bit um, not long ago. And I forget the name of the sister. It's one of the professors, I'm, I'm pretty sure, that I follow. It, it was the sort of thing that I read it and I was like, hmm. And then later I was like, that was really profound, and now it's like I get, mm. it's gone. I can't find it back. Right, right. Um, but she was saying that the notion that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice is wrong, mm-hmm. and believing in that makes us lazy, as if that will it mm-hmm. will just happen. We mm-hmm. don't have to make it bend, mm-hmm. and things don't just move in a right or just direction. Rights are lost, people are destroyed, and. So to you, I wonder, like, are in general, are things moving in the right direction for black people or not really? Yeah, I think they are. 
Um, but I, I, I grade that on a curve. You know, if we say that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, then that means we have to, and I agree, this is not a um, automatic function. You know, it bends in accord with the force that's exerted upon it. And uh, I think that things are. Um, but, I, but I don't think that is, I don't say that in a kind of facile way. Um, and so what I mean by that is, so we're fighting about voter suppression. And in a very crude comparison, we can say we've always been fighting about voter suppression. Except in 1890, we were fighting mobs that had eliminated entire black electorates. Mm -hmm. That you could go to places in Mississippi, in Georgia, uh, you know, in, in the Carolinas, where there are entire counties and no Negroes vote at all. Mm -hmm. We now have a congressional black caucus. Uh, we have representation in the Congress, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, at too many municipal levels to, to count. I forget what the number um, of black elected officials in the United States is, but it's gargantuan. What's happening now is a form of voter suppression that attempts to go around the edges to diminish. in relative to what we've had, but I believe we have zero governors. And is it two senators? I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to okay. it. So we're saying we're looking at a form of voter suppression that's intent on diminishing black representation or black uh, participation in the margins. But they can't re reduce the entire black electorate to nothing. And so if I'm looking at that in comparison to my father who left Georgia, one of my earliest memories is that my father took me into the voting booth with him when he was six years old. When I was six years old, Beautiful. Uh, he voted for Jimmy Carter. And I didn't understand what was that, what that was about. It was just like a fun excursion with daddy until I was older. And he told me I would got, he was like, if I tried to do that where I grew up when I was a boy, I would have gotten killed. And so do I believe that we have vanquished the forces of white supremacy? No. Do I believe that we are fighting the same iteration of the battle that my father fought? No. Uh, and so when I say that, we can say we have zero black governors. We can say that we are underrepresented, as all people of color are um, in American society in terms of the number of people who are elected, hold elected office. Absolutely true. Uh, do I believe that those struggles that people waged over the course of the 20th century uh, have made things better? Indisputably. And so I sure. think that that's it. And the summary, the summary of it is like the phrase that I always use. Uh, I have the optimism of a boxer in the late rounds, mm. meaning that you are well aware that you're going to be punched in the face because you've been punched in the face. But you also are aware that these people do not have the strength to knock you out, that you were still on your feet, you were still throwing punches, and that you're still going to be standing at the final bell. And that if you do what you came to do, you may actually pull this out. And so I think that's the, the scale that we should look at our, like what we're measuring against. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Whatever the amount that the moral arc of the universe is off from justice, if it's 90 degrees, 72 Mm -hmm. degrees, whatever it is, it will never get to zero until we deal with the wealth gap. Right. And that, and whether that means reparations or, I mean, it's never, the wealth gap will never just work itself out. No. So we need some sort of intervention to Mm -hmm. work in. And, you know, reparations is generally considered public funds. There are private individuals who are like, I I could do it. Right. I talked to a billionaire once who's like, I'm thinking about doing it. And Mm -hmm. like, person didn't i don't know why you would think about it and talk don't, to like, don't tell people right, right. Talk to like, black people about like what do you think i'm right. like sounds like a great idea but i decided to not do it like right. but unless there is some significant financial intervention right we will never get to actual justice yep 
And so I think that, you know, going back to, um, you know, again, you know, Derek Bell, who's on my mind because I wrote about him recently, but, um, and one of the last conversations I had with Derek Bell was about James Baldwin um, kind of closing the loop. But, you know, he had this idea that, that black progress in this country has always been a product or has always been coordinated with white interests. You know, that emancipation happened because it was the only mechanism by which white people could preserve their union. You know, they wanted to hold on to their country. We wanted to get out of slavery. Like, we can make a deal. Um, you know, the Cold War is central to the motivating ethos of the American government in the civil rights era, like the reforms and concessions that they make. And we can kind of go through all these things uh, about people's self-interest being connected to racial progress. Now, you can make the argument, which I think is a cogent one, that most of the social progress we see is because people decide that it's in their self-interest in some way, shape, or form. You know, not just racial reform, but lots of um, social reform that happens. So what I think is that in that middle third of the 20th century, so if we look at the kind of first 20 years of the 21st century, one of the things that people see are, you know, the striking parallels between the first 20 or so years, first quarter century of the 20th century, uh, where we were completely riddled with conflict about immigration. Uh, we were uh, riddled with the kind of what we would call now wage stagnation uh, or what people would have called class exploitation then. You know, the development of corporations and large companies that exerted, you know, titanic influence uh, on you know, the economy. Uh, migrations, you know, uh, across the country. Uh, issues of so voter suppression, a resurrected movement for white supremacy. Like all these things we see first quarter century of the, the 20th century um, that also would apply to the first quarter century so far. That's about um, in the 21st century. So what do we see in the middle third of that century? <clears throat> Lots of social reform. You know, when we get the New Deal, when we get the Highway Act, when we get the birth of American housing um, a policy uh, and we decide that we're going to actually make uh, university educations accessible to the whole public. Why do people do it? Because they have massive social discord. And you're realizing that, especially after World War II, like you have to do something with these people, uh, that our social stability is directly connected to these people's chance to have a decent life. Mm -hmm. So I think that because we have short recollections, we found ourselves now in this place where we're replaying those things and having to learn those same sorts of lessons, it could well be in people's self-interests based upon what happens in this society, uh, especially when we think about things like automation and displacement and what the future of labor will look like, to say that we have to, in response to social convulsions, whatever those look like, we have to come up with a more equitable way of distributing the wealth of this society. Um, you know, yes. right. And so does that include black people? That's, I think, what the fight is, you know, to make sure that we're at the table because in the 20th century it didn't, you know, and then the 21st century, hopefully with history as a guide, people are more aware that you can't, you know, change this while cutting black people out uh, or we simply are not going to allow that to happen. Mm. Um, 
So I think that that's what will happen. I think that there's a chance. I'm not a, a clairvoyant, but I think that there's a chance that we'll have so much social discord in in the middle third of this coming of the current century that we'll have no choice but to change the way that the society operates. But we, <clears throat> the society, white people in the society, have been so deeply taught that black people are lazy, criminal, mm-hmm. and lack mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. So how do we get them, how would we ever get them to say, yes, let's give them either some massive group payment or remove their taxable, or, you know, they remove their tax debt so they don't have to pay taxes or whatever. whatever. I mean, even that wouldn't be sufficient because I don't need you to take something away. I need you to give me something mm-hmm. so that, you know, and not necessarily me specifically, but like we need to give so that we could create something. I think about like, you know, my God, if like five black billionaires put together a $500 million fund, that mm-hmm. would be nothing for them. Mm-hmm. That was meant to uh, allow black people to buy homes at rates lower than, than currently imaginable mm-hmm. and seed, you know, 10,000, a hundred thousand black homeowners and like, let that grow through generations. Like mm-hmm. that would be incredible. That'd be amazing. Right. And like uh, an, an, an active reparation, not just like we gave you $10,000 or a hundred thousand dollars. Do you, but like but also, but also, so here's the thing. So I think that's true. Right. But the, the, the thing that pisses me off about like the proposals for black people to do this for black people is that fuck you. Like, no, I know. But no, no, but, 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 but who's going to do it? But They're I, not I, I think do it. that's true. That's the pragmatic point. Like, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? I mean, but, if Bill Gates said he would do it, then it's coming from white America. Fine. Right, would but, it not be better if it was coming from the federal government? Yes. Sure. But like, at some levels, like, well, who's going to actually do it? But so the, here's the thing, right? And I'm not disagreeing with this. This is purely like a theoretical sure. like beef. But problems that affect white people are American problems. Right. They're society. Society, we have to address it. Problems that affect black people are, are black, black problems. problems. Right. right. And so right. in saying that, like when people ask, like, what are you doing for the black community? I'm like, I don't know. What are you doing for Appalachia? Right. right. Or what are you doing for the black community? Right. Like, exactly. What are you doing? A You're a citizen. I'm a citizen. Right. We're all citizens. Right. right. Exactly. You're but, not doing shit for Chicago either. Exactly. We could, <laughs> we could point out all of these areas of need in America. But how is it that I get designated this particular one? Right. It happens to be a community I love, a community I feel responsible for. Sure. But I resent the idea of people externally. Like if a black person says we're responsible for each other, I'm like, fine. But when white people tell me I'm responsible for black America, again, my response is like, fuck you. Fuck Who are you, you responsible for? Fuck you. Like, what are you doing about the opioid crisis? That's what I want to know. You know? <laughs> Nothing. You know, or, you know, what's happening, like these, the divorce rate among white people. What are you doing about all these single, like, white parents? I, I am, I am. I am deeply concerned about white on white crime and all the white people who are murdering white people. Exactly. I'm really concerned about these things. White lives matter. White lives <laughs> And their lack of concern for that is distra- where are the rallies? Where right. are the marches? Exactly. Where are the fundraisers to stop white right. on white murder? Exactly. <laughs> like when they're like, you only care if, uh, if a black person is killed by the police. You only care if a white person is killed by a black person. Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. like we're all let's just let's just put it all on the table here. So, all right, let me throw this at you. 
something I've been thinking about. Uh, you know, there's there's George Floyd statues, and you did a lot of work on the ground in, in Minneapolis after mm-hmm. his his murder. Um, George Floyd statues all around different places in the country, New York City. Um, you know, white people love to run by and deface the statues right, right. of George Floyd. <laughs> on brand, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I get into this argument on Twitter because white people, especially some black people, are like, you know, well, why should George Floyd have a statue? He's a criminal. Mm-hmm. And y- yes, it <laughs> is a fact that George Floyd has a criminal, had a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However... Professor, you would say what? Oh my God. Like, wait, I'm sorry. I thought we were I thought we were having a conversation about moral relativism. <laughs> that the person's uh, shortcomings didn't prevent them pre- prevent them from being a symbol of some broader aspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're saying every time we see a statue of Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. every time we see a statue of George Washington, every time we see a statue of these Confederates, no less, you know, who fought for the right to rape black women mm. and to sell black people. Mm. Like those people were supposed to have redeeming qualities that counterbalance them to such an extent that you could lionize them. George Floyd was a common regular man, everyday man who suffered from addiction. Like a lot of people in this community do. And that his problems, uh, you know, led him into to situations that no one would want to be in, but for who, for which he was the primary Victim, the primary person who suffered as a result of his behavior was George Floyd. And then he suffered terribly at the hands of the state in a way that was inhumane. And so his life became a broader symbol of people's aspiration to remove that kind of violence from society. Like, that's not hard to understand. Um, If he had suffered police violence while in prison for the violent crimes, mm-hmm. that would be a different conversation. It would be a different conversation. It would be, it would be wrong. It would be equally right. wrong. Right. right, right, right. The state should not be mistreating right. prisoners. But if the, if the police officers were like, oh, you did such and such, so we're going to mm-hmm. make this stay hard for mm-hmm. you, like mm-hmm. that would be one thing. But we have no idea. I imagine Chauvin had no idea who he was. I mean, well, we think maybe he knew he was because they right. had worked together. Right. But not thinking, oh, we're finally going to get this criminal right. who's been menacing this neighborhood. Right. You know, you, you maybe passed a twenty dollar bill. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of what's going on with you today. Mm-hmm. That should have nothing to do with his past. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is this is why we have a statue of him to remind remind us of something horrific that happened to a citizen, whether or not he was, uh, you know, an angel in the Mm -hmm, past mm -hmm. is irrelevant. I mean, if nothing else, if it stands as a reminder to police officers, right. What could happen if you allow your power and your bias to go nuts? Right. Then that's useful. Think of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that he, like, it's, um, that old saying, you know, I forget, is it Marx? I have it wrong, but, they're saying that, you know, men make history, but not under the circumstances of their own choosing. Mm. Like, you know, George Floyd made history. He didn't choose to make history in a way that he did. No one would. Um, but he did make history and he did change the world. You know, the way his daughter said, uh, he changed the world in a way that was horrific for him to have to endure. And so we have a statue of him as a gesture of empathy. Mm. You know, like the man died in this terrible way and suffered 
you know, needlessly. And to think about this, and I'm someone who, you know, for people who've ever lost their mother, you know, who I have a natural empathy for because, you know, my mother is not here anymore. But to think about the level of despair that you must feel to know that your mother is dead and still call for her anyway, that's the most existentially terrifying concept that I can encounter. Mm. And mm. so he was he was calling for spiritual intercession. He's not calling for his mother in Texas to get on a plane and come help him. He's he's she's he has realized there is no help for him on this plane. He is hoping that someone can intercede from someplace we don't even know. Mm. And angels. Please. Angels. Right. God. Because he is because he has given up on mortals. The people are not right. the living people are not here for me. And that's that's like that's an incredible responsibility to have on our shoulders to say, like all of us have failed. George Floyd. Um, but but people deface the memorial of Emmett Till Emmett still. Till. Yeah. So that's why I was like, it's on brand. Like, there are people who were like, it's not. It's cliche. Like, we knew you all were going to do that. Right. Like, I mean, like, even to put Black Lives Matter on a street and inevitably some white person and some black people right. will come by and throw paint on it. Like, right. wow, really? Yeah, like, what is that? Really? But it's even it's even like the kind of presumptions um, that undergird the willingness to do that, you know. Like, I think the deliberate misunderstanding when people said Black Lives Matter, um, and we're like, well, what all about, lives matter, or what, what about, about our lives, lives, and so on. Um, and there's never been any question about that. You know, that's not been part a fundamental part of your experience to say that your life, because of what you look like that your life has is accorded less value, you know? Um, what did you learn about the case or about America um, from being there on the ground that, that I might not have known following closely, but I was not there? So one of the things that was very, like, interesting um, was just how many lenses – George Floyd's death was refracted through. Mm. Um, so people were talking about history and the way in which the black population in Minneapolis had been marginalized. And I imagine you know this because of your knowledge about Prince and you know his um, the context of him growing up. But most people don't know. They're like, black Minnesota is Prince. <laughs> That's it. Um, but talking about what you know, North Minneapolis was and the restrictive housing covenants uh, and the, the policing policies that have resulted in these questionable shootings and these questionable fatalities literally dating back 20, 25 years. So there was a whole narrative that people had there. The other thing that I think was really interesting was just how um, cross-racial that alliance was. Some people got, you know, but for having written about these things going all the way back to Amadou Diallo in New York in the 90s, it's usually the people who were on the street look like the person who's dead. Um, mm -hmm. But in Minneapolis from the get-go, you yeah. know, I talked with this person who was the head of uh, Minneapolis. It was, I, I don't want to mess up the name, but it was a group of anti-police brutality organizers uh, and so I talked to this guy. Uh, I, he told me he was a white guy. 
And I was like, okay, so you know, what are the make, what's the makeup of your group? And he was like, oh, uh, we're about ninety percent white. And I was like, what? And I was like, the police anti police brutality organization dealing with you know lots of people who are who are people of color who are being killed. And it's like ninety percent white. Uh, that really wouldn't happen in. That certainly wouldn't happen in New York. You know. Well, well, I mean, you were outside when that was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, like those protests would be extremely white. And not overwhelmingly so. Well, yeah, in, in the case of George Floyd. And yes. I think that's what that's what made that stand out. I yes. think that's why we're having this conversation. Why? Yeah. Y- yes, yes. That's why it was a lasting moment. Why was the George Floyd protest moment so white and black? I, you know what I think? Um, I think that... Which is when, not to leave out our Latino brothers right, and sisters like a and lot of Asian, Asian brothers and sisters and a lot of too. a lot of indigenous folk I saw yeah. who were involved and and little do we know that uh, you know per capita the indigenous population Native Americans in this country have a bigger problem with police use of sure, force than sure. African Americans do sure. um, and we don't we don't even have we don't engage that conversation but I think that what happened was that um, kind of synchronicity of the pandemic meaning everybody was at home and the fact that it took nine minutes for George Floyd to die because the standard defense is always like the officer was operating in, you know, split well, second decisions well, just, just, and so just on. Just the way that you receive it, uh, you know, Laquan McDonald, Tamir right. Rice, John Crawford, whoever, it is a five second video right? and it can slide off the mind. Right. And eight and a half, nine minutes, whatever, it, it becomes indelible. You, how yeah. do you, you know, how do you start unseeing it? Right. And the nature and the length of the death is what made a lot of people say, "Wait a minute, right. we, we we can't we can't have this." Right. If he just shot him quickly, it'd be a whole other conversation. Yeah, it would. There wouldn't have been a conversation. I don't right. think there would have been a conversation in Minnesota and among like a small number of people, but. You know, most people would would have been able to rationalize the situation in a way that made them feel comfortable. The other thing I think is that it boomeranged, you know, because among white people, when you do polling, uh, the institutions that they have the most trust in, they don't trust Congress, they don't generally trust the presidency. Um, but they trust you know, the popo. They trust the police. They trust the police, they trust the military, they trust small business. And so this went to an institution that they trusted Black people have already had a much more high degree of skepticism about policing. So here you have an institution that you actually have faith in and hold up. You've seen this dude kneel on somebody's neck for nine minutes. With his hands in his pocket. With his hands in his pocket. I mean, it was like, it was also like, it was also like a disjoint. He has his hand in his pocket like a catalog model. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is. But it's like, it's like. Uh, like a white guy, his height, his build, his age, it's like eh, the Johnson and Murphy catalog, sure, right? Sure. No, yeah. Um, standing yeah. there casually with his hand from, from if you have just a shot of him from the torso up, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. it's a model shot. Sure. But when you zoom out, you're like, this dude is in this mo- the most casual of poses. But now you make me think about, you know, the... Um you know, like white men on safari and they've right. murdered some beautiful rhino or elephant and they're just sitting there like one knee down, like mm-hmm. look at us. And mm-hmm. like, but now it's a black man. So you know what's interesting about that? I mean, that's a really like profound point. Um, there's a book 
that I read and then just was, I was stunned by it when I finished because it was a subject that I thought I knew. Um, and then I just had this whole other window into it. Um, you know, the, it's a historian, Amy Louise Wood. She wrote a book called Lynching and Spectacle. And mm. what she talked about in that book was literally the spectacle of lynching and talking about you know, the reason that we have so many photographs of lynching is that uh, this was the point at which people first began to make portable cameras. And it set off a, it cut off a photography phase, people craze. People photographed everything in their lives, you know, and then they would photograph the lynching because it was something in their lives. And she said, like, now we look with horror at those images and wonder how anyone could have ever been so inhumane as to pose next to a corpse in this way so proudly. And she said, but the better way to understand it is to think of this as part of a very familiar genre of American photography. These are hunting. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray thrivemarket.com slash Toray this episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus get in loser Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic get ready for more of the rumors backstabbing and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises rated PG-13 wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free photos mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is the person standing next to the buck that they just killed mm-hmm. this is the the 10 year old standing next to the fish that they just caught mm-hmm. and holding it up for the mm-hmm. camera to see it's the same thing it's not inhumane if the murdered entity is not human it's not human right and so the, the these black people are photographed in a way that equates them with animal you know right. animals that have been killed How many years have you been at The New Yorker? Uh, I've been a staffer since 2015, and I first started contributing in 2012. So um, almost almost 10 decade. years. Yeah. Do you, feel, uh, do you feel pressure to speak for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and how is that tempered by, you know, the fact that the overwhelming audience is white? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like... I, you know, I, I believe in my community. I love my community. I want to speak to and for my community, but then right. the people, most of the people, I mean, I think, I know there are black people who would open the New Yorker and just check for you, mm-hmm. but still most of the people who are going to come across that piece are going to mm-hmm. be white. You know, I've thought about this a lot. Um, 
And of course think, you have. Of you course know, you have. Right? You've been there a decade. But I think the through line is curiosity. Okay. You know, like, I think that's what unites people. And also, I think the New Yorker's audience is dynamic in such a way. Like, the the stereotype, you know, um, you know, Robert Warshaw has that that collection of essays that um, the, immediate, the immediate experience. And he has that essay about the New Yorker, which is like 1935 or 1940 or something like that. And uh, it's a kind of satirical line where he says, uh, the New Yorker will never tell you what to do about anything. It will just tell you what proper pose to affect while discussing it. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious because it's like the stereotype of the, uh, you know, eternally poised upper East side, upper income person who's opining about the world. Well, it's rather interesting. There appears to be a problem among the coloreds. Um, and so it's like that kind of, that kind of stereotype. But, you know, what I think is that the audience of The New Yorker is much more dynamic now, especially, you know, with social media. There are people who are interacting and engaging, you know, with content in ways that they wouldn't, you know, 10 years ago um, and certainly not 20 years ago. And so I don't feel pressure to speak for us. Um, I do feel like I have to be true to myself and that I have a perspective that is very much honed in my experiences as a black person in this society. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that I can speak for us. If I ever did, I would be disabused of that idea within five minutes because there's always a black person who disagrees with something I've said. Well, sure. And, and we are not a monolith. Right. But I mean, I think anytime you have a mouthpiece within a white institution, mm -hmm. to, you know, you run into these issues. Are you sort of like, do you find yourself like I have to explain us to them in a way that oh, I would yeah. rather not? No, no, no. Actually, I don't. I mean, I don't. It's not saying like would I rather not. No, I think that um, like part of it is. So I wrote about um, the that mass shooting in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree right. of Life um, shooting, and I wrote about that kind of having written about having been in South Carolina during the shooting um, at the church. And so these are religious institutions. These are single gunmen motivated by, you know, racial and ethnic hate. You know, there's, there's kind of big through lines. Um, but, you know, I have some knowledge of Judaism, but I'm not like a scholar. Uh, and so the fact that this happens like in the middle of someone's bar mitzvah you know, which is happening, you know, at, an, at another synagogue. And they have to interrupt it and lock it down. All of the synagogues in that community locked down um, while the shooting was happening. Mm. And so when I was t writing that piece, you know, I talked with David and was like, okay, David, walk me through David this. David Remnick. David Remnick, right. right. When I'm, walk me through this. Like, so this is happening in this community at this moment. Like, you know, what does it mean that this happened like, in the middle of this person's bar mitzvah? Like, is this interpreted in this particular way? And I interviewed people. I sat down with people in their homes. I had like all of these kinds of stuff. But I also wanted to understand this, you know, from his vantage point. And so um, I don't think that that's any different when someone is writing, you know, a piece and they're like, you know, I've written this. This person has like this this line in here. I'm wondering like how that is, or if this is like you know. And so I think that that 
is important. And, you know, I think an institution is better the, the, the more that it can draw upon those kinds of voices. I know, like, when I was at Rolling Stone, you ran into a certain thing of, like, I want to talk about the black artists because I feel uniquely equipped to tell their story in a really authentic uh, way. And like, you know, when I show up, they're like, okay, we can relax because we know that this person will see our humanity and mm-hmm, see our mm-hmm. brilliance to take us seriously. And then sometimes like, yeah, but sometimes I want to write about the white artists because right. otherwise you guys don't, you guys in this building don't see me seriously. I don't want to be just here that's for right. the black subjects, mm-hmm. but I do want to be here for the black subjects because that's the stuff that makes me like excited right. to like listen to music and to talk about it. Um, you know, and the other stuff does not excite me at the same level. Yeah. But it's also, you know, so I spent a semester in Moscow. I wrote a doctoral dissertation that was like in large part about the cold war. Okay. You know, I have like all these interests in, you know, Soviet slash Russian affairs. And that is less than 1% of the stuff I've written for The New Yorker. But if I was just writing on, like, based on my interests, I really also am very interested in science. You know, I would love to do science writing. I would leap at the opportunity to do travel writing. Um, And, you know, if I wanted, if I pitched, you know, ideas around that in The New Yorker, I would probably find a receptive audience. But the fact of the matter is that two dynamics here like one i do feel a sense of responsibility because i know the contours you know of these subjects and you know i've written about them long enough that i i know how to approach them have a body of sources etc and the other part of it is that you have to go through that process of building an audience again like like, oh yeah i have to find the science readers you know who are really interested in this i have to get them to like Oh, Jelani wrote this really interesting piece about this, you know, or I mean, the might, Russia people, and so they, yeah, they might give you a chance because you have established your your brilliance and your name brand at the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. But a place like that looks for ex- expertise, mm-hmm. and if you said, "Hey, I want to do a travel piece where I go to China or something that has nothing to do with the expertise that you have shown." Mm-hmm. They might say, well, that's great, but we have somebody who has a PhD in China and grew up there or has family there. And Well, I want to write about science. Like, mm-hmm. that's great, but we also have somebody who won the Nobel Prize five years ago who wants <laughs> to write about like So then it's like, well, damn. Like, But when it comes to anything black, like, well, you know, Jelani outstrips, just his resume outstrips mm-hmm. everybody. So then you kind of are in a box and you're like, but I do have other things, you guys. Like, I know, but we have an all-star team. That's true. And you are our, our all-star shortstop. I know. And when it's you like, want to go play first base, like, but we have an all-star first baseman already. Right. It's like Johnny Bench, who's like Hall of Fame catcher, but third baseman. He was like, hey, you right. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, actually. It's a good question. I haven't, and, in, in, you know, I'd be interested in seeing, like, maybe how that unfolds, because I think one of the things that I want to do is like, you know, so books have been kind of culminating things like the book that I did on hip hop, um, not intentionally, but after that, I had been writing about hip hop for a decade at that point. Mm. And then I did that book um, to the break of dawn. Mm. Um, and then like it was as a market share, it was, it became like 5% maybe 
where before it had been maybe 60% of the stuff I was writing about. And after that, it was like 5%. Then it's like zero. And, you know, maybe in the last five years or the last 10 years. But um, I don't know that this this book will have that same effect. Like, you know, all of a sudden I've you know gone off and I'm writing about all these other things. But, you know, I could see myself feeling more um, freedom to pursue you know, some of those other interests. I hope so. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Cause you do, you do want to cover black culture and history and yet show I, I am deeper and broader than this. I do have other interests that have nothing to do with blackness. Right. I am- like, you know, like Frederick law Olmsted, who you know, like, is like this fascinating figure who I encountered um, look, just kind of growing up, you like, I don't somehow you acquire the knowledge that he designed Central Park. You know, he designed all these things and he'd like, you like, oh, he did this. He did, you know, you know, this university campus and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then it wasn't until I was like an adult that I encountered his whole other body of work as a journalist. Mm. Like he had written one of the most extensive travel journalism pieces about slavery you're traveling through the South. Wow. I think it's called the Cotton Empire um, or the Cotton Kingdom. Uh, and it's this massive book that you know, he wrote as a correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, and it's a kind of sociological examination of, of what slavery is and who the slaveholders are. And he's just going around as this journalist, you know, interviewing these people uh, throughout the South. And I was like, man, that is amazing that you could do these things that are so wildly different. It's beautiful. Yeah, then come back and just be like, I'm, you know, now I'm going to design parks, you know? Um, I think I think there was more understanding of, of people having more varied interests mm, in the past mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people being able, you know, I think recent decades we get more into specialization mm-hmm. And and specialization breeds more specialization. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so wait, what's your? Let's do this. What's your top five MCs? Oh man, you can make me do this. I'm sure we did it the last time you were here. <laughs> yeah. But okay. I wonder if it's grown and changed. It probably has not changed. <laughs> um, you gotta have the list. I do. I do. But I'm I'm just trying to make sure that I'm fair. So because I am who I am, I grew up where I grew up and, you know, in the time that I lived in. put run. Oh, you put LL number Oh, well, look, look, look. Okay. So we did talk about this before that uh, uh, LL Cool J was my eighth grade classmate. Right. And uh, run was my brother's high school classmate. Right. Growing up in that neighborhood. Yeah. But no, I wasn't going to say that actually. Melly Mel. Okay. Rock him. Jay-Z, Lauren Hill, asterisk. Asterisk, why? I'll come back to it. Okay. Um, and Black Thought. So that's four. No, is that, is that that's Well, you five? gave Lauren an asterisk. Oh, well, wait, 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 Lauren's an asterisk. Here's what I like the thing with Lauren, right? You kind of went in, in, in historical order there. Was that... Purposeful was is Melly Mel number one. Melly Mel is number one, and then you go, and then you. Go, okay. But I don't think those are necessarily like the other. The other four people are not necessarily in order. So the reason I have an asterisk with Lauren is that I feel like there's this thing like, are you evaluating by like 
the whole length of their body of work or you're evaluating by a particular moment. I feel like when Lauren Hill came out, she was just murdering folk like mm-hmm. as an MC and just elevating the art in a way that was incredible mm-hmm. and then just stopped. And I just was like, oh, wait. Well, it's interesting you leave off Nas as a, a, Mr. As a Queens, Queens Mr. Queens. Well, well, we do have to talk about that. Do we have to talk about that? Well, now that you said it like that, uh, yes. What's the matter? Okay, so I feel like Nas, damn, you're going to get me in trouble now. I feel like, <laughs> like Nas is an amazing artist, but it's always like, you feel like, it's like an unfair, it's an unfair thing that happens to prodigies. With prodigies, it's like hard because like is Nas in my top 10? Absolutely. But you always feel like you're measuring Nas of his like incredible output versus his, versus his infinite potential. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like as good as the body of work that Nas has produced is, like his talent is even, his potential was even higher than that. And so I always felt that kind of like twinge so about him. So you're grading him down because the output was high, but he could have been better. Right. But his output is better than 99% of but as, people's like, it's anyway. Like what's, what's the categories? What are the, what are the criteria that we're measuring people on? Then? Well, the criteria, is, of course, is a critical question. And for me, I never rate you down for a bad or an off album. Right. Right. I'll give you points for you succeeding. Mm -hmm. This is a great album. This is a great song. This is a great collab feature, whatever. Like I give you a point for that. If you do something bad, there's many reasons why some that could have flopped. Mm -hmm. Right. So you just didn't score a point. I'm not, I don't want you to lose points because you know, I had a bad year. I had a bad month, whatever. Um, I mean, Nas to me has a lot of points on the board. Um, sure, but and, and not to just talk about not right. I mean, like it, there, it, it's interesting and difficult to gauge the the Melly Mel era, which was it was not a profession. No, his career is extremely short because it was not a profession. But do you know why Melly Mel always is my number one? Why? Like, I thought that was going to be your first question, actually. Why? Well, we, you know, we're so, going to get to that. So Melly Mel, Melly Mel is number one for me because so many of the cornerstone elements of emceeing were developed in his work. When he starts talking in metaphors, you know, mm-hmm. he, was, he has that line um, where he talks about, you know, eyes, lines of windows, lines of eyes dressed, dressed as windows, something like that. Mm-hmm. He's describing buildings as being um, spectators to the city. Mm-hmm. And you had just had not seen that kind of layered metaphorical complexity mm-hmm. in hip hop. Hip hop wasn't even old enough. It's like the child that. You know, kids are learning mama, dada, and it's the child that's speaking in full sentences. Uh-huh, you're going uh-huh. like, oh, wait, you're way ahead. Like, other people are eventually going to get to this place, but you're, like, way out here doing this thing. And those were, that laid the groundwork for what other people did. Like, when people talk about, you know, Louis Armstrong being sure. at the center of jazz because you know, you're helping develop the language that other people utilize. It's interesting because, yes a lot of those that mid 80s early 80s group 
they're all like Melly Mel was the man or it's Kaz or mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Cool Kid, whoever. Cool Modi. Cool yeah. Modi. It, it, mm-hmm. Well, even before Cool Modi, like a mm-hmm. Cool Modi era is like looking back to right. like Grandmaster Kaz and Melly Mel. Mm-hmm. But the adjectives and the way you're describing it to me is, is rock him. Mm-hmm. That he is the reason why everybody after him rhymes the way that they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, Rakim would be like, yes, of course I listen to Melly Mel, mm-hmm. but he also has this incredible jazz history sure. that he's responding to. Mm-hmm. So he's not just like the son of Melly Mel, he's also the son of jazz music. Right. Um, but Rakim to me is the unassailable bridge from the monosyllabic, you know, fairly relatively monotone era to polysyllabic internal rhymes, deeper thoughts, philosophical rhyming. Um, You know, we're not doing toasts and chatting anymore. We're talking on a much, this is a much higher level of flow of of wordplay of thought that I mean philo- philosophically speaking yes. like that's yes. that, he brings in that element like philosophy and theology in hip hop in a way that hadn't been but I mean if we're talking about that then it's also you know my classmate LL Cool J uh, for elevating the the vocabulary which was something he didn't always utilize when he first came out. You know, you know, my joke was that, you know, he rhymed like he had just rated an SAT prep book. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this whole vocabulary section is going in this next song, you know. Um, But it also made a more sophisticated um, vernacular in hip hop. You know, another person that I put, you know, in there in that same like way of influencing, you know, which people don't think very much about you know, in most common conversations, but, but cool Keith, you know, right. Um, because the ultra magnetic MCs, like I remember specifically the first time I ever heard them, you know, I was in union square, you know, the, the nightclub, you know, not just the neighborhood, but the nightclub union square, uh, in 1987, it's 86, 87. And, you know, Eagle tripping came on and I remember like everybody rushed to the floor and I was listening like, yo, what are these dudes talking about? Like this abstract, surreal, science fictional, like all these like references. That was like, yo, are these dudes high? Like where, where is this coming from? Um, I had never heard anything like that. And I thought that that also like expanded the parameters of like what people were thinking about, especially given the fact that like all of these dudes were 17, 18. Sure. You know? So wait, to come back to Lauren... Because I'm like, I want to give you artists a point or multiple points for doing something extraordinary. All right, I'm going to remove Lauren's asterisk. Right? Yeah, I mean, what you do with what she does with the Fugees and then the miseducation. Sure. She's running up the score. It's untouchable. I, right, right. It's extraordinary. I mean, like Ellison is one novel, but right. it's better than all the rest of y'all. So who cares? You did five That's books. True. My That's one true. book is better than all five of yours combined. So what are we talking about? I will concede your point. I think that you're right. No, I've, I've, I mean, obviously I love her. I wouldn't put her in my top five, but I love, I think she's an extraordinary MC, extraordinary part of the history um, the, what I thought you were going to give her an asterisk is because she sings a lot, 
So yes, then it's like, well, what are we talking? Are we talking about but, just a vocal artist? Are we but, talking about rapping? But I don't really have beef with that because you remember going back to like the Fantastic Five and all those other, they, they harmonized and sang as much as they rapped. Yeah, but when like, we get to Rakim, KRS, sure. Slick Rick, even Nas, Jay-Z, like we're not singing, we rap. It's different. And like that you can sing, mad props, but- at some level, when we're gauging hip hop, I'm not mad at do it. Do we give you points because you can sing? I'm not mad at it. I no. don't give you points because no, 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 you no. can sing. I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it. She's, Erica, calling, she's calling upon a tradition that goes back to the foundations of hip hop. But I mean, then you know, I have to have this conversation about about big. You know, who could just if you know, I go outside and the wind is blowing east. You know, I, he displaces somebody on that list. Hell I yeah. go like big is you know because. His unparalleled storytelling ability. Hell yeah. The unparalleled. He he actually, which I've never heard any rapper do before him, he told stories inside stories. Right. You know? Right. Whereas like that whole flashback when like somebody gotta die, and he goes like just drops that whole second stanza to give the backstory right. on a character. And it's like, wait, right. what? And, and it's clearly influenced by um his love of cinema. You know, he's right. deploying the storytelling Hitchcock. techniques. Right. Um, you know, both in terms of visual imagery, but uh, but also literally structurally. Like, the, the, I got a story to tell. Right. He raps it, and then he talks it, and right. both of them are incredibly interesting ways of telling. And the stories are funny, sexual, violent, right, egotistical. So you hit all, all the those notes. Things. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that like, like Jay is just, um, I mean, unbelievable. The monster is a monster. Yeah, you know where you like still find. Do you know where what my favorite song of his is? Ooh, which would be it's probably surprising to people. Where I'm from. Okay. You know, okay. it was like um, he's that line where he said, "You can't put your vest away." Because the day after tomorrow, they'd be saying, damn, I was just with him yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> and so you said, you know, um, it said life expectancy is so low, we filling out wills at 18. And I was like, God. Right. And so that's a dude that's like rapping like, I, I literally might not be here tomorrow. I'm going to put it all on the court. Right. You know? Right. Right. Um, and so just like, and the other thing that, that I, the other reason why, you know, Jay is like permanently in my top five is that one thing that hip hop has been reticent to allow people to do is mature. Right. You know, and right. that was something that like without naming people, you would have people who were in their mid thirties talking about the stuff they were talking about their yeah. early twenties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it just don't, it doesn't hit the same when you like approaching middle age and you're talking about, I'll fuck you up. I'll shoot you. You know, it's like, like, really? I agree. I like, agree. Are you really going to do that? Man, you might pop a tendon out there trying to do like this stuff. <laughs> no, I completely agree. I wanted, I always wanted to see MCs grow up, talk about kids, talk about like, you know, now I'm in a different stage of life and right. Jay-Z is absolutely allowed that of like you know i'm i'm in a different stage of life right right i love that you know um so yeah that's that's my beautiful somewhat 
flexible, not entirely permanent list. You, you like me, it's a very New York list. Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. I mean, because I also would say, like, it's, like, very cliche to say, but, like, you obviously is, like, Andre 3000 as a contender. Um, you know, obviously Cube. You know. I love 3K. I love Cube. Lil Wayne. Lil Wayne. Just does something to me. Lil Wayne is, uh, is he's just like 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 you like when you see those fights when the one guy just hit the other guy like 15 times right. in a row. Right. I'm like, God damn, what and, and the thing the thing too, I think about Wayne is like you sometimes have artists across genres where they just have a period. Like you go like, oh, like these artists who are doing like all these things, but between nineteen seventy four and nineteen seventy nine there's really nobody else that you need to talk about in the art world. Sure. You know, like sure. Wayne has these periods where it's just like, wait, what? Like he's doing like this and then he just reaches his zone and it's everywhere, untouchable. Then he's off doing something else. And I mean, so there's a lot of lazy metaphors in this game. And that guy right there never does lazy no. metaphors. No. Not one, and I'm like, yo, what? And I'm the, even, was, even, you know, the. Um, I was thinking about real G's move in silence, right? Like like lasagna, lasagna. <laughs> but I don't take it like a like 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 the word. Mm -hmm. I take it like like lasagna, like a giant piece of lasagna right. moving down the street, <laughs> right. and it would be silent. Right, right. it's like it's like it's kind of right. gloppy, so it doesn't right. make any noise. Right. <laughs> like it's like a jelly gonna right. get you. Right. That's hilarious. I now have stuck in my mind the image of somebody rolling up to do a drive-by on a piece of lasagna. Right, um, right. But yes, yeah, so I think it's like that's a very New York list. I'm a, I'm a New York dude. I grew up in a particular era of New York, hey. and so it's like reflective of that. But um, you know, and then there's like a, a whole array of people that you know you you have to think about. I don't want to have a conversation about Pac because I'll get hate mail. But he, I mean, he never he never really resonated with me in a way that he resonated with other people. I I, I agree. I get mad when people put him number one. Yeah. He's not number one. Right. If if you didn't think about the shit he did outside the booth. True. He's not. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's not number one. There's not. It, it, elite MC, fine. But there's not the wordplay. Right. There's, no, there's right. an emotional depth, but there's not the complexity that Cube uh, you right. know, Rakim, Jay, Nas, Wayne, 3K are, you know, Black Thought are just, just, yeah. you know, that's just, 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 I was just warming up, right. you know, for them. And he, he, he does not belong in nobody's top 10. He's not like that. Yeah, I know. And I know you love him because he so, seems so great. He was, he was, like, like, he was, know. he was a powerful person. He was a charismatic person. A hundred percent. He's become like like hip hop's Jesus. Right. Like the rappers pray to him. Right. And they want to be like him. I get it. I'm with it. I understand. I met him. I interviewed him. I respect it. But just to play those records? Mm, yeah, I know. But also I feel like, you know, with with people I also ask, is like this person essential to understanding any like a particular thing? And I feel like, you know, you could make that argument. You know about a lot of people who are on that list like they're fundamental to this you know like i could see 
some anthropologist in the future, you know, combing through lyrics of, you know, lots of people on the list to understand what they were saying, you know, about that time period. Mm. Um, and I think that Pac has some of that, but I, I feel like he's not like cornerstone. You have to have him to understand that part of the world. Thanks so much to Jelani for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Toray Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.